At certain times in our lives, we find ourselves at an intersection. And in these defining moments, we have to decide which path we're going to take. The path God has laid out before us or some other way. In 2020, when the world hit pause, First Church chose to hit play. We believe this is our moment, not to just go along with the flow, but to navigate people down the path God wants them to take. During our 115 year journey as a church, we faced a lot of intersections. And we're here today because those who came before us did not choose the easy path or the path of least resistance. For over a century, First Church has impacted the 918 and beyond because we've let God lead us down the path of faith. Today, we find ourselves at another intersection, a pivotal moment in our history. Now isn't the time for us to turn around. Now isn't the time for us to wander aimlessly. Now is the time for us to courageously take the path God has placed before us. The path Jesus wants us to take may not always be easy, but with Him as our guide, we are unstoppable. Well, hey, welcome to First Church. So glad you guys are here. And if you are new, my voice does not always sound like this, okay? I just want to let you know up front, I am struggling with a little bit of laryngitis. I feel okay, but my voice is a little bit off, so I apologize for the scratchiness or whatever. But we're going to get through this because God works through our weaknesses, and I think it's going to still be an awesome day. But this is week five of our series, Unstoppable. And if you are new, besides the fact that my voice does not normally sound like this, if you want to get caught up with our Unstoppable series, you can go to our new Unstoppable website, firstchurchok.com forward slash unstoppable, and you will see our vision that we are trying to carry out that we believe God wants us to carry out, not just during this six-week period, but for the next two years to come and for decades after that, as God uses this moment in our history to shape us and to do something great in our midst, because we believe we are here not to waste time, but to redeem the time. And so I want to take a quick moment to welcome in all of our online family members. I know we have a ton of people here in person, but if you would put your hands together, welcome in our online family. Glad you guys are with us. I just saw we have Jennifer. She's watching right now. She's at work. I'm not sure what she's doing, but I'm sure she's doing her job and worshiping at the same time. So glad, Jennifer, that you are joining us as well as the rest of our online family who's with us today. And if you were not able to be here this past Friday evening, those of us who were here, it was an epic, incredible night. It's a night, honestly, I will never forget. It's probably one of the highlights of my ministry. It, it was exciting, my ministry career. It was exciting, it was fun, and um, I just love, I love our church family. I cannot express how much I love our church family. But if you uh, were not able to be here this past Friday night, we're not finished yet, we're not done yet. We still want 100% engagement of our church, and so, as was talked about earlier in the service, Commitment Sunday is next week, one week from today. And this is when 100% of our church will have a chance to engage in this unstoppable initiative. And we're not going to reveal just yet the numbers, that uh, the commitment numbers that came in this past Friday night, because again, we want 100% engagement. So we're going to reveal the numbers when we do have everybody, when everybody has a chance to participate. But let me say this, if Friday night is an indication of what God is going to do on Commitment Sunday, 
we're going to have a huge Commitment Sunday. So I am excited about what God is doing. He is doing something special in this place. But in order for us to achieve what we believe he wants for us to do, we need 100% engagement. And that's what we've been talking about in this series. So make sure that you're here at Commitment Sunday. Did they already put the pictures up from Advanced Commitment Night? Maybe we didn't do that yet. If you missed out, here's some of our after-party picks. We had a good time. You see, we had a great crowd. If we keep scrolling on, there was a, an artist that did this uh, chalk art thing, which was really cool. People took some pictures. Uh, there's our worship service as well. We had some testimonies that took place and different things that happened. It was just a powerful night. And this next Sunday, Commitment Sunday, is going to be that on steroids. So we are looking forward to having a blast this next Sunday. Make sure that you have plans to be here. Don't miss. We want all of our church here on Commitment Sunday. And if you are new here, you might be thinking, well, this is kind of odd. We're here as they're starting this initiative and whatever else. We don't want this you or make you feel uncomfortable or intimidate you or anything like that. We hope, if nothing else, that as you see our church family in action, that you realize that we're a church that really does believe in our mission, that we're a church that is passionate and excited about the mission that Jesus has given us. Because we believe Jesus' promise in Matthew chapter 16 when he says that he will build his church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We believe we are here for a purpose. And for 2,000 years, Satan has been trying to stop the church from carrying out Jesus' purpose, but he hasn't been able to do so. And there's a reason for that, because the Bible promises in 1 John that God's spirit who is in us is greater than the devil, our enemy, who is at work in the world. We're able to continue to carry out God's unstoppable mission because the one who is living in us is greater than the one who is in this world. But here's the thing. Notice what this verse lets us know. The devil is still at work in this world. He's still active. And so that doesn't mean that our mission is going to be easy. In fact, I mentioned that last Sunday. Just because our theme is unstoppable, it doesn't mean that what God is asking us to do is going to be easy. In fact, we're going to take a lot of hits in life. We're going to struggle at times. We're going to have trouble. Jesus says this. He doesn't hide this from us. He says, in this world, you will have much trouble, but take hope. I have power over the world. In other words, you are going to take some hits. You're going to have some struggles. There's going to be stresses. It's not always going to be easy. But no, in the end, the gates of hell will not prevail against you. See, as a church, we're kind of like this dude right over here. Any, any of you guys have one of these when you were a kid, or maybe your kids or grandkids have one right now, a punching bag? I know it probably reminds you of somebody, me, right? So um, maybe minus the abs, but still. Um, you know, this is us. You may not realize it, but this is us. And just like this punching bag in life, we take a lot of hits. We get hit over and over again. Some are harder than others, but we take some hits. But what I love about this punching bag is that Every time you hit it, because there's air in it and water in the bottom, he comes right back up. You can't keep him down. And that's the way the church is supposed to operate as well. As long as the church has God's spirit within it, leading it, dwelling within it, guiding it, empowering it, as long as we have God's spirit in our lives and empowering us and letting him take the lead, then we can withstand hits. And we can know that even though some hits may be harder than others, and some hits may keep us down a little longer than others, as long as God's spirit is in us, the world, evil, Satan, 
even death, can't keep us down. I don't know about you, but I love a good story of endurance, a good story of perseverance and grit. And I believe that's what God is calling us to. Because what God is asking us to do is not easy. No one here is saying that it's easy. And what we're being challenged to do during this unstoppable initiative, it isn't easy. It is a huge goal. It's a God-sized goal. It's not easy. But it is essential. What God is asking us to do as a church, it's not easy. But it is essential because we are the vessel, the instrument that God has chosen to change the world through his son. And that's why Paul says in the book of Galatians, he says, let us not become weary in doing good for at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. It's a call to endure, a call to persevere, a call to have grit. You know, when I think about stories of perseverance that inspire me, I think of somebody like Walt Disney. You've heard of him before, right? Walt Disney, as a kid, was told that he lacked creativity and imagination. Can you imagine that? At one point, his company filed for bankruptcy because he couldn't find enough financial supporters to keep his company going. Can you believe that? And now, look at the creative empire that Walt Disney built. He refused to give up. He went through some times of depression. There were times that he even spent some alone time away from everybody else just to think about whether what he was doing, whether it was necessary or not, whether he wanted to keep doing it. But he just kept going because he believed in what he was trying to accomplish. What about Thomas Edison? Thomas Edison, he was told by his teachers when he was a child that he was stupid and he was lazy. That's what he was told. Now come to find out he was actually dyslexic and he overcame that, became a great inventor. And we know his story. He's most famous for the Edison light bulb. But here's the thing. Even in creating the Edison light bulb, it took him multiple, multiple, multiple tries to get it right. And at one point when he was still trying to develop the Edison light bulb, one of his colleagues asked him, do you ever get discouraged because you're not having any results? And he had this famous line, no results. Why, man, I have gotten a lot of results. I have now found several thousand things that won't work. I love that, you know? It's like, hey, I just found a bunch of ways how not to make a light bulb, you know? What about this guy, Michael Jordan? 1997, game five of the NBA finals. It's a famous flu game. We later found out it wasn't the flu. It was food poisoning, but still, Michael Jordan was as sick as a dog. He came out, you could tell, in the first quarter, he didn't have the energy. I mean, he could barely stand up at times. He would go to the bench and just collapse. And at one point, the Jazz they were playing against had a 16-point lead on the Bulls. But then at some point, Jordan kicked it into the next gear, and he started to really play. He ended up finishing the game with 38 points. He had seven rebounds, five assists, and he ended up hitting a shot with just 25 seconds left in the game to put the Bulls up, to take the lead. And you guys know the story. Chicago ended up winning that game. He was sick. He was tired. He was fatigued. He didn't have the energy. And yet, he had grit. And he powered through it. I love stories like that. Or whether it's a preacher whose voice is fading away and still trying to get through the sermon. I love stories like that, you know? Perseverance, endurance, because you believe in what you're doing. Okay, anyway, maybe not the same. But still, I believe that the greatest story of grit and endurance, perseverance, 
was meant to be Jesus' church. Because we are going to face the most opposition that anybody on the face of the planet will ever face. And Satan and all the powers of hell are going to be against us. But the Bible promises we will endure. In fact, in the book of Hebrews, it talks about how one day everything is going to be shaken and removed and gone, all this temporary stuff. And it says all of creation will be shaken and removed so that only unshakable things will remain. And then it tells us what those unshakable things are. It says, since we, sorry, that's my voice there. Since we are receiving a kingdom, man, I sound like a teenager. Anyway, since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, Try not to get that high again. Let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe. Did you catch that? What's the unshakable thing that's going to last? We, the church, us, we are going to last. And in the end, when everything else is removed and everything else is destroyed and everything else is gone, who will remain with God forever? His church, that's us. And so that should motivate us to keep going. Because that's what we need to think about when we're in life and we're getting punched and we're getting hit. And when we stay down a little bit longer than we did the time before and we wonder if we're ever gonna get back up, we've gotta keep our focus not on what's going on today but on the promise that we have for tomorrow. Because in the end, we are, we are part of an unshakable kingdom and nothing can hold us down. And that's why we're looking at the book of Acts in this series right now, because as we read through Acts as our guide for this unstoppable mission that Jesus has given us, we discover that the church had this grit about them, this perseverance, and they just kept on going. And there's going to be a great example that I want to look at today in Acts chapter 16, if you have your Bibles. Now, last week, as we were studying, we left off in Acts chapter 9. And if you will recall, uh, Saul was persecuting the church. He was a Jewish leader excuse me, and he was persecuting the church, and then he converted to Christianity. Jesus got a hold of him, and Jesus transformed, changed Saul's life, and then Saul became one of the greatest leaders that the church has ever seen. He became one of the greatest servants of Christ in all, all of history, but even though Saul became this great apostle, the apostle Paul, who started dozens of churches and led thousands of people to Christ and probably has influenced millions, if not billions of people throughout the history of the world through his writings in the New Testament, even though he was this great leader of the church, Paul didn't have it easy. In fact, his hardships for the sake of Christ started pretty early on after his conversion. Look at what happened. So Acts chapter nine, he's converted. But right after he's converted, the Jews in Damascus conspire to kill him. There's a plot against him and he has to escape for his life. Also in Acts chapter nine, he makes it to Jerusalem and he's rejected at first by the church in Jerusalem. So he goes to meet his fellow Christians and his fellow Christians in Jerusalem don't want anything to do with him because they don't believe in his conversion at first. Acts chapter 11, there's a famine that impacts the entire Roman world, and Paul has to keep ministering and serving during the midst of this famine, this empire-wide famine that is affecting everything. When we move on, Acts chapter 13, he's opposed by an evil sorcerer in Cyprus. This sorcerer is out to get him and stands up against him. In Acts chapter 13, he's chased out of the region of Poseidon Antioch. In Acts chapter 14, he is stoned in Lystra and left for dead. He is physically, literally stoned, and they thought he was dead. They thought they killed him, but I guess he was just playing dead, and he got back up. I don't know, but they didn't kill him, but they thought he did. Can you imagine being physically stoned? Acts chapter 15, 
He deals with division from within the church that's taking place. Also in Acts chapter 15, he is betrayed by a ministry co-worker. And then in Acts chapter 16, we see he's being harassed by a slave girl who's possessed by an evil spirit. And you got mad that somebody took your parking spot this morning at church, you know? I mean, think about everything that Paul went through. And these were in his first days of following Jesus. Paul took hit after hit after hit. And here's the thing, his trouble didn't end there. In Acts chapter 16, when we're going to pick up, I mentioned there's this slave girl who's possessed by an evil spirit. She's following him around everywhere he goes, taunting him. And this is what's going on. It says that she had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Now, a couple things I wanna point out about this slave girl who's possessed by an evil spirit. It says that she can tell fortunes. And what's interesting is the Bible doesn't state that this was like a carnival act or that this was just some gimmick to get money out of people. It talks about this girl as if she really did have the ability to do this to some degree. And that just lets me know something. And I wanna point it out. Guys, Satan does have power. Now he's not more powerful than our God, but he does have power in this world. And here's the thing, if she is accurately predicting the future at times, what that means is she is using truth to lead people to believe Satan's greater lie. And Satan does that all the time. He'll use a little bit of truth in order to get us to follow his bigger lie. He does that all the time. And we need to be careful because even though, yes, the spirit who lives in us is greater than the one who is in this world, the one who is in this world is still very powerful. And we don't need to take him lightly. But also there's something else that I want you to pay attention to. This girl is following Paul and Silas and the other uh, uh, missionaries here around everywhere they're going. And she's shouting at them and distracting them and trying to embarrass them because that's what Satan does. Satan knows that our work is essential and so he will try everything he possibly can to get us to be embarrassed or to maybe to draw back or to maybe distract others from listening to our message. He will do whatever he possibly can to distract others from hearing what we have to say and from seeing what we want them to see. So eventually, Paul has enough. And this is what happens. Paul decides to cast this evil spirit out of her. And it says, when the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. So Paul cast this evil spirit out of this girl. And I bet she is overjoyed. But her owners, not so much. Because they've been using her to make money. They've been exploiting her to make money. And all of a sudden, now that Paul has cut off her psychic hotline, they, she can't make money for them anymore. And so they get very upset and they turn Paul in to the authorities. And these aren't good guys. They lie about Paul and they say that Paul and his associates, they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating unlawful customs. Now, that's not at all what Paul and his associates were doing, but they're mad. Their pocketbooks have been hit and they're frustrated and so they're mad. And here's the thing, the local government, the authorities there, as well as the people of the city, they don't know Paul and Silas, but they know these guys, they're locals. So they side with them. And Acts 16 goes on to tell us, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. 
After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Now, I don't want for us to pass by this too quickly. Paul took hit after hit after hit, and I want you to realize the hits that Paul was taking here. I don't want us to sugarcoat this or sanitize this. First of all, it says that Paul and Silas were arrested and they were stripped of their clothes, and then they were beaten with wooden rods. So imagine being stripped of your clothes and then having a group of men with baseball bats come and go at you. That's what they first experienced. All because they tried to rescue a girl who was being mistreated by some slave owners. After they beat Paul and Silas, they, did, they then had them flogged. And we've talked about flogging before. This was no small physical ordeal. What they would do is, again, you were stripped of your clothes and they would chain you, tie you to where your arms were stretched out and then a Roman soldier would stand at your backside, one on each side at your back and they would hold this whip, this contraption known as the cat of nine tails that basically had nine leather straps on it and within these leather straps were embedded pieces of rock and metal and glass and other sharp objects, even like animal's teeth. And then with one soldier on each side, they would whip you, but they wouldn't just whip you, they would hit you. And then they would let those pieces of rock and metal, whatever, sink into your skin. And then they would pull and tear the skin as they came across, literally filleting your backside. They would do that starting at the shoulder blades, go all the way down to your calf muscles. According to one Roman historian, six out of 10 men in the ancient world did not survive flogging. And many who did survive it, or they physically disabled the rest of their lives. That's what Paul and Silas are going through. And then after their flog, they put them in stocks, which meant they stretched their bodies out to where they would not be able to move or to lay down or sit down comfortably. They were in agony after experiencing all this pain. And on top of all that, they're placed in a Roman dungeon, a Roman prison cell, a dark, dirty, unsanitary prison cell with thieves and robbers and murderers. And let me ask, is that what Jesus meant when he said the gates of hell will not prevail against my church? Is that what you hear when you hear that promise? Is that what Jesus meant? Yes, because of what happens next. It says at midnight, after they've been beaten, flogged, put in stocks, this dark dungeon cell, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. At midnight, after experiencing everything they had experienced, they're singing praises to God. And my question is, in a situation like that, what would make you want to sing? I can understand praying. If I was in that situation, I'd probably be praying too, God, get me out of this. God, help me right now. But singing praises, I don't know about that. In a situation like that, what would make you want to sing? 
But Paul and Silas here are letting us know something. They're letting us know that even though they may be locked up, you couldn't keep them from looking up. Because real worship doesn't need the right place. All it needs is the right perspective. And they weren't focusing on what was happening to them that day. Their focus was on the one who held their tomorrow. And in the presence of God, our earthly fears assume their proper size. Because our praise isn't based on our circumstances. Our praise is based on the character of our God. And here's the thing. If you're going to be singing songs of praise in that situation, you better know those songs before you ever get into that situation. It takes a predetermined decision, choice to be able to praise like that in the midst of that situation. You've got to know where your hope is. And Paul and Silas, they had living hope. Hope that wasn't based on emotions or feelings, but hope that was based on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they knew that his resurrection was also their resurrection. And because they had this living hope, their living hope fueled rebellious joy. Even in the midst of the darkest of times. And it's interesting to me that years later, about a decade later, after Paul gets out of this scene, he will write to the church at Philippi where he was imprisoned. And he will make this statement. He says, rejoice in the Lord always, and I will say it again, rejoice. I want you to notice something. That's not a suggestion. That's a command. It's in the imperative. Paul isn't saying, oh, well, rejoice when you feel like it. Or rejoice when things are going well. He says, rejoice in the Lord, what? Always. And I will say it again, if you didn't hear me the first time. Rejoice. And why is Paul giving us this command? Because we can't control how the world responds to us, but we can choose how we respond to the world. Our joy is not based on our present circumstances, but our joy is based on God's unchanging promises. Now, let me just be very clear. When I talk about rebellious joy, I'm not talking about superficial happiness. I'm not talking about walking around with a smile on your face all the time and never frowning. I'm not talking about never having a bad day. I'm not talking about just you gotta be laughing all the time. I'm not talking about that. Life sometimes hurts way too much to fake that. What I'm talking about is what Karl Barth calls a defiant nevertheless. That no matter what happens, this world the people who are against us, the powers of evil that are at work, the dominion of darkness, no matter what they do to us, we will not let them rob us of our eternal joy. It's rebellious joy that in the midst of the darkness, we will focus on the light. And it's a choice that we make. It's a type of joy that you find when a friend of mine whose wife was diagnosed with a very aggressive form of breast cancer, when they came home and the shock started to go away and they started to talk about it, realizing that she only, probably only had a few months 
he looked at his wife and he said, are you okay? And she said, nothing really changes. And then she quoted this verse right here. She quoted the verse that says, if you wanna go into that next slide. It says, if I live, it will be for Christ and if I die, I will gain even more. And she made it her mission to then go and talk to all of her loved ones, all of her friends who didn't know Jesus, Lord, because she knew her time was short and she was gonna use every moment she had in order to tell them about the joy that she had in Christ. And she ended up baptizing a ton of her friends who didn't know Jesus and they all said in the midst of this horrible news, they could not explain the joy that she had within her. It's like the professor I had in Bible college who was diagnosed with cancer as well. And I remember after going through months and months of chemo, him being in a worship service, and he was weak, and he didn't feel good, he was fragile. And during the midst of a worship song, him putting both hands in the air and singing praises to his God. It's a rebellious joy that no matter what happens, this world and sin and sickness and death, it is not going to get the best of us. It is a defiant nevertheless. And here's the thing, rebellious joy, what that means is it is trusting in advance what will only make sense in reverse. It's trusting in advance what will only make sense in reverse. And the world doesn't get that and they don't understand that, but we know that because of the resurrection of Jesus, we know how our story is going to end. And that's why I believe the church is so important because the church can give us the support that we need to remind us of how our story ends. We had a couple in our church that, a family in our church that recently got some bad news health-wise. And I want you to hear from them. Take a look at this video. I'm Eric and this is my wife, Leslie. We have one son, his name is Jonathan and we have been members of this church for 18 years. First Church has had a huge impact on my life personally, and I know on Leslie and I together. Being able to go through very difficult things in my life and being able to have a support group that helps me understand, realize, follow God's path through the difficult times is, is precious to me. Uh, we just had a very uh, scary uh, medical emergency with Leslie and my church family surrounded us with love and support and we felt it and it was just incredible, awesome. And it, it brought me so much peace and I don't think I would have had that if I didn't come to church and wasn't with this group. and the group of people that called and prayed with me and I felt it and it was God's will I was going to make it through it and I knew it and it was so strong. I just can't even tell you how important it has been. We give to First Church because First Church has given so much back to us and our family. Support, friendships, love, guidance, all together. That's what we have received back from First Church. As our church moves into this unstoppable season, this new growth, this new experience, this new building, this new journey that we're all gonna be able to be part of, 
We are so excited to be part of it and the giving that we're gonna give will increase because I wanna see this church grow and get larger and bring more people to this church, bring more people to Jesus Christ. What excites me most about the Unstoppable Initiative is what we can do with uh, younger people to give them almost the strength to make the right decisions in life, to teach them to be kind, to teach them to love Jesus and love like Jesus. I mean, I think that's, that's where this whole initiative, that's what it's for, is to go out into the community, bring more people to um, our church and Jesus and give them the tools they need to be strong in their life and to do the right things. The history that we've had with our family and how great it has been watching all these young people that are now young adults grow through this church and the love and support that was given to them by the ministry, the church, the families, that is unstoppable to me. You guys know it's tough growing up in the world that we live in right now. And our kids, your kids, grandkids, they're going to experience a lot of hits. And what they need to have is a church, a family that will remind them of what really matters, that will support them when they take those hits, encourage them, know, let them know that they're loved, but also let them know that no matter what happens to them in this world, they have hope outside of it, that when everything else is gone, they are a part of a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And that's what we have in the resurrection of Jesus. Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus took a pretty big hit. That good Friday night, everybody thought he was down. Satan thought he had won. Saturday morning came around, he's still in the grave. Saturday afternoon, the disciples are panicked. They don't know what to do. They're scared to death because Jesus is dead. Saturday evening, still in the tomb. But on that Sunday morning, Jesus rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, when he came up, he came up not to be hit and knocked down again. He came up to stand up forever and to let the world know that he is victorious over everything, even death itself. And Jesus today, 2,000 years later, is standing tall and he's standing with his church and he's letting us know that his resurrection is our resurrection as well. And we can keep going. We don't have to give up. We don't have to back down. We don't have to settle for the status quo because he is with us and is on our side. And that's why the Bible says in 1 Peter, it says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. In this you greatly, what? Rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have, you have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. You see, rebellious joy is unstoppable joy. And that's what we want everyone in the Owasso community and beyond to experience, and that's what we want our next generation to experience as well. Because you know how this story ends with Paul and Silas in prison? It says that 
about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other prisoners were listening to them. You know why? Because when we have rebellious joy in the midst of difficult times, the world listens. The world leans in to listen. And then something amazing happens. As Paul and Silas are singing, a great earthquake comes and their chains come off and the prison doors open up because God does a miracle and the jailer thinks that all the prisoners have escaped because what would you do if you were in a Roman dungeon cell? Wouldn't you run too if all of a sudden the chains popped off and the prison doors opened up? And so the jailer is getting ready to kill himself because he knows Rome's gonna do it for him because he let all of his prisoners escape. And listen to what Paul says, don't harm yourself. We're all still here. And this Roman jailer is probably thinking, why? I would have ran, why didn't you run? Because Paul and Silas, their joy wasn't based on their present circumstances, but on God's unchanging promises. And they knew they had a mission to carry out. And so they then start to tell the jailer about Jesus. And in Acts chapter 16, it says, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately, the jailer and all of his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He took care of them and he was filled with what? Joy. Because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. Rebellious joy is unstoppable joy. And when we demonstrate rebellious joy in the midst of fear, in the midst of darkness, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of cultural division and political division, when we show rebellious joy to the world, the world sits up and listens. And it's not just that the world listens, but the world wants to have what we have. Right now, this Sunday, our kids are making their commitment to Unstoppable. And it's not necessarily a financial commitment. There's all sorts of things they can do. My son has committed to write a card to somebody, I think like once a week or something, in order to encourage them. I don't know if he realizes what a big task that is, but still, that's what he's committing to do this morning. And I've, Addie was still back and forth what she was gonna do. I'm not sure what she's gonna end up deciding to do, but they're making a commitment uh, today. And we've been really promoting Unstoppable with our kids. And so they've gotten little gifts and stuff like these foam fingers, which some of you adults have asked for these too, you know. First church, Unstoppable, yeah. Uh, but, and it's funny because the other night I was with Alex and Addie. Allison was out with some friends and so I was just watching them and I asked Addie to pray. And when she prayed, she went through the normal stuff, you know, prayed for her friends at school and prayed for the food and all that. And then she got down to the, to the very end and this is what she said without any coaching at all. She said, thank you for being unstoppable. That's worth everything. We need to let the next generation know about our unstoppable God and first church, this is our moment to do it. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for today and this chance we've had to open up your word and study it. And God, I just pray that in the midst of these challenging times that we will be a people of rebellious joy because we know rebellious joy is unstoppable joy. Empower us as we go through this next week and next Sunday as we have our official commitment Sunday. Father, we just pray that you do something beyond what we could ever ask or imagine. In the name of Jesus, I pray. 
Amen.